This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Welcome to the Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. The Nipah virus is back in the news. For the fourth time in five years, Kerala is battling an outbreak of Nipah. The virus, first documented in Malaysia in 1998, is zoonotic, which means it is transmitted to people from animals. In this case, the animals are believed to be the fruit bats of the Teropa species. As of September 15th, six people have tested positive for Nipah virus and two have died. A central government team is in Kerala at present and a mobile testing lab has been set up. In infected people, the World Health Organization says, the virus can cause a range of illnesses from asymptomatic infections to acute respiratory illnesses and fatal encephalitis. But despite our many brushes with Nipah, there still remains a lot that is unknown. We still need to know more, for instance, about how the virus spills over from bats to humans and why this is happening. There's also growing concern about the surge in zoonotic infections across the country, scrub typhus and leptospirosis, for instance, and why this is taking place. To explain what we know about the virus so far, its symptoms, treatment, and where research now needs to focus when it comes to zoonotic infections, we have with us today Dr. Subramanian Swaminathan, Director of Infectious Diseases at Glen Eagles Global in Chennai and Vice President of the Clinical Infections Diseases Society of India. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Dr. Subramanian. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Doctor, tell us all that we know about the Nipah virus so far. Okay. So the Nipah virus is a relatively new entrant into the ambit of viral RNA viruses. In that, it's probably been around for quite some time, but uh, many of these viruses have remained unidentified because we really were not looking very closely at some of these things. And second is that some of these viruses tend to be geographically restricted in that they are only present in certain areas of the less developed world and therefore they may not be identified that early. Now Nipah virus is a RNA virus uh, of the family called the paramyxovirus. We already have other viruses of that family which are well known like respiratory syncytial virus. But uh, Nipah virus is not something which was well known till about 1998 when the first time we identified an outbreak in Malaysia. And since then, there have been numerous outbreaks in Malaysia, Singapore, Bangladesh, and also in India. Uh, obviously, uh, more and more is becoming, we are becoming more and more of the Nipah virus and its manifestation and all the other problems associated with it. But the challenge has been because these uh, outbreaks disappear very, very quickly, we have a very small time window in which we can do our data gathering and assess what needs to be done. So a lot of it still remains unknown and therefore needs further study. Tell us a little bit about its transmission, doctor. We know that it's a zoonotic virus and that it is believed to come from fruit bats, correct? Right, right, right. So obviously there is a zoonotic cycle in that there are a lot of infections which are present in bats. Bats have a weird immunological system. Because they are upside down and they are mammals, their immune system must accommodate for a lot of injury. And therefore, their immune system is down-regulated, which allows them to have a lot of viruses, including the rabies virus for that matter, without suffering the consequences of it. So they have a lot of viruses like even the Nipah virus. Again, not all bats have all viruses. Remember, bats by themselves are a huge class of animals where they have multiple, multiple, multiple types of bats. 
So they can harbor these viruses without suffering any of the harmful effect of the viruses. So they have a very curious immune system. But obviously, they end up transmitting it to those who are vulnerable. It is primarily a, a, an infection in animals. And uh, we have known in the past that it can cause a respiratory infection, especially in pigs. But this jump into humans has been something which we believe is relatively new. And we don't know exactly how it happens. There are theories, of course, like, you know, if a bat is um, half eaten a fruit or, lit or contaminated a fruit and you consume it, you could be in trouble and things like that. While these all sound very fanciful, it does not necessarily mean that's the problem. It's just a theory and uh, every other theory is just as good or just as bad as this one. How do we know it's not uh, respiratory secretions or reproductive secretions which are present on the floor? And if you have cracks in the skin when you're walking barefoot, it could have entered that way as well. And there could be 100 other uh, postulated hypotheses as to how it could have transmitted from the bats to the humans. So therefore, we don't really know exactly what it is that uh, made it jump from the bats to the humans. But we do know it can do so. And this is where data gathering becomes even more important. And obviously, we need to go beyond just human disease. We need to start interrogating the animal life cycle of the Nipah virus and start studying about Nipah virus in the wild among animals and bats a little more closely for us to understand this better. Tell us a little bit about how it is transmitted between humans, doctor. Now, uh, it is said that contaminated food or even respiratory droplets, the way COVID was transmitted, uh, same way Nipah is so, also transmitted. Um, I, the thing is that, again, these are areas where we have postulated hypothesis, but there's no proven hypothesis, proven uh, data. Let's start with how it moves from uh, bats to humans. The most preferred theory, I will call it preferred theory because there is absolutely no data to back one over the other, is that maybe there is fruit which is contaminated with bat secretions and the human consumer can, can have trouble. Again, we don't know if this is really true because uh, the data on it is very, very fanciful at this point of time. It could be true, but we don't know. What about human-to-human -human transmission? The probability is extremely low. Can it happen? The answer is yes. Fortunately for us, uh, we believe that although it's droplet infection, the probability of transmission from person to person is very low. So we look at something called a reproductive number or an R0 or a R0, whichever way we look at it. Now, the R0 very simply put, is the number of people infected from every patient. So the higher the R0, the more rapidly it propagates. For measles and uh, chickenpox, the R0 is between 12 and 18, meaning for every patient who is infected, they can infect another 12 to 18 people. For COVID in the initial stages, at least it was 2 to 3, meaning for every COVID infected patient, they will, they will cause problems for another 2 to 3 patients. So any number more than one means the disease will keep propagating. And any number less than one means it will start dying out very quickly. So uh, obviously, the lower it is, the faster it will die out. For uh, Nipah, someone uh, has calculated it to be around 0.4. Again, not very accurate estimates, but then it's reasonable. So that basically means for every infected patient, they can transmit it to 0.4 people, which basically means that person-to-person -person transmission is not a very efficient mode of transmission. And thank God for that, because if it was very effective in transmission, the chance of it perpetuating and causing a pandemic is high. And it's because of this uh, very uh, poor ability to transmit among humans that we are able to avoid a pandemic or a generalized uh, problem with this particular pathogen. So it's a fragile virus, in other words. 
Well, again, see, if it was fragile, wouldn't it uh, not have disappeared in the bats as well? It's probably that we are not a preferred host for this organism. We have a lot of organisms like that which make their way into humans, like hydatidsist and, uh, and you know, neurocysticercosis and all that. We are not the preferred host for that. That doesn't mean they can't enter us. It's just that there's no way for them to say complete the life cycle and move on. So we have pathogens like this, which by mistake get into humans. And then they realize that it's not uh, a very efficient way for them to go forward and survive. Uh, we are not the right host for them. But they still continue to do so in the animal environment. And that's something we need to study further because I don't think we are doing enough to find out exactly what is it that is happening in them. Right. Tell us a little bit more about the signs and symptoms of the of the Nipah uh, virus in humans, doctor. And why the scary part about it is that the case fatality ratio seems to be high. Why is this? So um, the first thing is the symptomatology. So the, fir uh, the first thing is that uh, we don't know how many people become infected and we don't know how many of them have asymptomatic infection. The current belief is that most people who get infected with Nipah will have symptoms to some extent or the other. We obviously need to do more detailed zero surveys to see the extent of antibodies in these areas for us to know exactly how many people have been infected and how many are asymptomatic infection and things like that. The assumption is that most people will have symptomatic disease and asymptomatic disease is actually very, very unusual. To start with, uh, it starts off as a non-specific fever with some cough and respiratory symptoms. So it starts off as a respiratory illness and then can proceed into neurological symptoms like drowsiness, disorientation, delirium, and about 24 to 48 hours after the onset of neurological symptoms, they can proceed to coma. And if they do so, uh, the overwhelming majority of them are not going to come back. So obviously, progression to neurological disease is very, very bad. The problem is we are at this point unable to predict who will develop neurological disease and if there's any way to save them. We'll come to treatment in a few minutes. But the natural history of the disease is that it's fever, respiratory symptoms, progression to neurological disease in quite a few patients. And with that, uh, a poor outcome is inevitable. Uh, why is the mortality so high? Neurological injury is actually very, very bad. It's probably a combination of the virus itself and also an immune-based injury, which causes uh, this problem. And this is still being studied. We need more data on this. Obviously, it's going to be very difficult to study these people because doing a post-mortem analysis of this carries a very high risk for the person who's doing that. So generally, uh, doing post-mortem studies on these kind of patients is considered high risk. And therefore, the amount of data that we have is actually very limited. Is this unusual, a virus causing this level of neurological injury? Not really. We do have uh, a whole host of uh, viruses which cause what we call viral encephalitic syndrome. Uh, herpes viruses, all the herpes viruses are very well known to do that. Other than this, we have Japanese encephalitis, which we've been talking about in India for God knows how long. We also have West Nile virus. We have so many other viruses. Uh, polio virus can cause a uh, brain injury as well. So please keep in mind that neurological injury due to viral infections is not at all unusual. And it's fairly common. And in each part of the world, the causative organisms can be completely different. So Nipah is just one more uh, virus in a whole host of viruses which can injure the brain. 
Talk to us a little bit about uh, what is done for treatment, doctor. Uh, today, for instance, the Kerala government has said that it has received monoclonal antibodies enough to treat 25 patients. We last have heard about monoclonal antibodies during the COVID-19 pandemic. Right, right, Could you right. tell us more about this? Absolutely. So, coming, uh, I'll come back to the monoclonal antibodies in a few minutes, uh, in a minute. The first thing is, how do we handle any viral infection? The most important thing is supportive care. We obviously need to do the basic things like airway, breathing, circulation, make sure they get enough hydration, take care of the symptoms and things like that. That's obviously the most important thing. The second thing is specific therapy. So specific therapy can be in two forms, either as an antiviral or as immune therapy. Immune therapies are also antiviral. While this concept of monoclonal antibody sounds fancy to a lot of people, it's actually not new. Before the advent of antibiotics, when somebody had a pneumococcal pneumonia, they had anti-sera that was available, which is basically immunoglobulins. So people used anti-sera to reduce the mortality due to pneumococcal pneumonia more than 100 years ago. This is very, very old stuff. The thing is that we have refined the process and instead of using a polyclonal antibody with a lot of other impurities and things like that, we now have a specific targeted thing, which is like uh, instead of uh, putting an atom bomb, you take a very fine knife and cut it off exactly where you need to. That's the difference between um, monoclonal antibody and the uh, anti-sera that we used in the past. And uh, remember, tetanus also has immunoglobulin being given. Rabies has immunoglobulin being given. All these monoclonal, these are all monoclonal antibody examples as well. So this is not particularly new. Now, as far as the monoclonal antibody for NEPA is concerned, obviously it's been synthetic, uh, synthetically generated. And uh, it's not, it's, it's quite good. Having said that, where has it been studied? There are a lot of um, uh, other viruses in the same family of Henipa viruses, the other being Hendra. And this has been most studied in, with Hendra virus because it's a close related virus. If it works for Hendra, it should work for Nipa. And where was it studied? It was studied for post-exposure prophylaxis. Let us say uh, you have a nurse taking care of a patient with Nipah virus and she unfortunately is exposed to some of the secretions of the Nipah patient and there has been a breakdown in the infection control barrier. Like for example, the glove tore or you know there's body fluids or blood which spills on her or she had a needle stick injury for you know God forbid those kind of situations where you are at high risk for transmission. Using the monoclonal antibody has been shown to reduce the risk of transmission. In fact, in one study where they gave it on compassionate basis to healthcare workers, there was no transmission of uh, uh, the Henipa viruses to the uh, healthcare worker. So, does it help in preventing transmission if exposed? It seems to work. But does that necessarily mean that it will work as a treatment option? Now, that part is not yet clear. It could work, help in treatment as well. But again, it probably needs to be used fairly early. Uh, that basically means we need to identify the patient fairly early. See, even with COVID, the monoclonal antibodies were very effective if you picked it up before the patient got very sick. So that's why we used to push for di early diagnostics and uh, PCR and things like that. So that basically means the challenge is that, you know, you have a lot of patients, even in the Kodikod area, who have fever, say due to dengue or influenza or any other viral illness, other than say malaria, typhoid and whatnot. So, how do you identify the patient with Nipah virus uh, in that uh, group of people? Obviously, you, the easy answer will be looking at people in the same geographical community who have close 
interaction with the people who are already infected. Giving them the monoclonal antibody, certainly, especially if they are early in their illness, yes, it could make sense. But beyond that, would it work? The answer is we don't know. I think this is a good opportunity for us to look at all of these things. Monoclonal antibodies, by and large, are very, very safe. They tend to have very little, if any, side effects. So that's the good news. But uh, again, cost is an issue. I'm happy that the Kerala government has made arrangements for this. I think uh, uh, they should be congratulated for all the efforts they put in, including this, in the identification, control, and the mitigation uh, efforts for uh, Nipah this, uh, thus far and in the past as well. We seem to be having a surge in zoonotic diseases, Doctor. Orissa, for instance, has been hit by scrub typhus and leptospirosis this month. Uh, what is going on? Is it because of the constant human expansion into animal habitats? What is driving the surge of infectious diseases in our country? Not just here. It's happening worldwide. As humans start moving more and more into areas which were unexplored or underexplored, it is inevitable that we'll start picking up all these infections. If you look at the expansion of Ebola into humankind, that's an example of a zoonotic infection which came out of there. Marburg virus. So a lot of the data on um, uh, Nipah virus comes from a Marburg Institute in Germany. It's called the Marburg virus because a couple of African monkeys were taken there and some of the workers there died of a hemorrhagic fever. And that's when they realized that they were carrying this virus, which they called the Marburg virus. So obviously, when we start going into areas which are alien to us and we're home to these viruses, we are going to come back with, well, not just viruses. It could be parasites, it could be fungus, it could be bacteria, whatever it is. These things are going to come home with us. So scrub typhus is one more example of that. And therefore, it is inevitable that uh, with the habitat and climate change, we are going to see more and more of this. Dengue, for example, is now spreading into southern uh, Florida. And that's an example of climate change induced, uh, you know, spread of uh, viruses. So these things are inevitable. And uh, therefore, we need to be constantly vigilant of them. And that's why there is so much importance in understanding uh, what's happening in the veterinary and in the animal husbandry industry. And this is not something we have enough communication on. Everybody is working in silos. The zoologists are working in a silo. The veterinarians are working in a silo. The animal husbandry people are working in a silo. And the human um, you know, healthcare industry is working in a silo. And as long as they continue to do so, we are going to be in for nasty surprises. So uh, if they see suddenly a lot of animals dying of a particular disease, then we've got to be concerned. Uh, is this going to jump to humans and could it cause problems for us? So unless, unless that dialogue and discussion is continued on a regular basis, uh, these kind of problems are going to continue. We're going to have more and more nasty surprises as a concern. And yes, we need to try and find ways to mitigate this kind of climate changes and maybe even look at how we can have human expansion in a more controlled basis so that we can protect some of our natural resources and also ensure that we don't get, venture into areas which we should have no business being inside. And uh, I think uh, the, those are things which are more harder and probably require more uh, long-term collaborative effort in mitigation. Quickly getting back to Nipah for a minute, Doctor, what would you say are the research priorities right now? Quite a few things. The first thing is, uh, but let's talk at, uh, think about it in two parts. One is what needs to be done currently and two is what needs to be done long term. Currently, what we need to do is try and identify the cluster, establish a containment zone, have a coordination between the administrators, the healthcare workers, the epidemiologists, the field force, the uh, zoologists and people like that 
to try and see how we can make sure that it doesn't get any worse than it already is. Second is ramping up uh, uh, healthcare facilities and ensuring that there's no cross transmission either to healthcare workers or to other hospital residents and things like that so that we, this can be handled very, very safely. Third is obviously data gathering on uh, medical use. Now there are drugs which are recommended by WHO like ribavirin. There are other drugs like remdesivir which have been tried in certain patients and maybe there's some in vitro data on paviperavir. So all these things need to be studied in a controlled environment with the patient consent of course. It can't be guinea pig like activity. So all these things need to be uh, done because this will help us prepare not just for current protocols but also for later events if they may occur. And of course, uh, other than data gathering, also ga collecting samples for genotypy and to establish the database on exactly what kind of uh, virus it is and how it's similar or different from the previous outbreaks and things like that. So those things are for now. For long term, obviously, there needs to be a coordinated effort between zoologists, um, you know, veterinary micro um, uh, uh, virologists, uh, infectious disease people, epidemiologists, and, uh, and human virologists to try and look at the outbreak and look at why it is driving in those areas. Obviously, in some places of West Bengal, in some places of Kerala, this seems to be there. Why is it concentrated there and what is preventing it from spreading to other areas? That is critical because you don't want this popping up in other places as well. So we need to control it there and make sure it doesn't go to any other place. So unless we do that kind of concentrated epidemiological work, I think we are going to be, we could be in for nasty surprises in other places as well. So all of these things need to be done. And if we plan it and prioritize it properly, I think we have a good chance of getting a handle on this. Last question, doctor. You spoke about the effects both of climate change and of uh, human incursion into animal habitats and of the need for more study into the animal world itself to figure out how these viruses are moving. But with the surge of viruses that we are seeing, as you, uh, as you told us, dengue is now even showing up in America. What exactly can people do as personal measures? So, for instance, if, uh, if you or your child develops a fever, what do you do as uh, the steps that need to be taken and how do you protect yourself? Excellent question. The first thing which uh, all the audience need to recognize is that uh, it's most unlikely for any of us to develop Nipah at this point of time. So, while it is interesting for us to learn about it, it's not a real concern unless you live in that containment zone which has been identified for Nipah. As of right now, we don't have Nipah anywhere else in India. So there's no absolutely no reason to panic and we don't need to do some crazy things. You can still consume your fruits. There's no problem with that. It's not going to make you sick. So again, remember that if somebody falls sick today, it's more likely to be say dengue or uh, COVID or influenza or any of those other infections rather than Nipah. So overall, what we need to do is um, improve the healthcare uh, indices for our, for our population. Obviously, the, the most effective things from a public health standpoint are still the basic stuff, meaning safe water, uh, sewage disposal, making sure childhood and adult immunization is on top of everything as much as possible in terms of taking care of your underlying medical problems. I still see a lot of people whose sugars are completely uncontrolled, people whose liver, heart, kidney and uh, lung disease are not being taken care of properly. All these things are high risk and unless we pay attention to that, it doesn't make sense worrying about NEPA. Yes, it is a concern, but we have a bigger problem in terms of a lot of non-communicable diseases which are increasing the risk of communicable diseases. And that's something that people don't want to talk about because it's a very uncomfortable truth. And it's not, and it involves a lot of lifestyle management. 
and that's something that not everybody is very comfortable about doing so we need to tackle the pandemic of obesity diabetes heart disease all these things need to be handled all of these have effects on uh, these kind of other problems as well and remember when you have these things the mortality also goes up significantly so i think those are the basic things we need to focus on and i think as long as we focus and take care of those things the problem with these things will turn, turn to be turn out to be significantly easier to handle thank you so much for speaking to us today doctor absolutely pleasure in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon